0: Welcome to Jailor Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Lakshdata. This episode is the audio version of a live online session from JLF Houston 2020. Sweet Taste of Liberty. W Caleb McDaniel in conversation with Morgan Jerkins. There is-
1: So I'm going to start with a little story that I don't know might make Professor embarrassed, but um, I'm a huge fan of his work. Um, I first met Professor McDaniel last year when I was traveling to Texas to write about uh, Black convict labor laborers and how their remains were found in a place called Sugarland, Texas. And I actually traveled to Rice University's campus to speak to uh, Professor McDaniel. And a whole lot has changed in that year in terms of uh, this wonderful book being published and also him winning the 2020 Pulitzer Prize. So. The way I want to start it off, professor, is talking about this book and its creation, because I read that uh, initially you weren't going to write about Henrietta Wood. And there might be some people in the audience who are trying to write a book and might be trying to figure out whether or not they should pivot. So can you take us to that moment where you were like, you know what, I think I want to switch gears for a second.
0: Absolutely. Thanks so much, Morgan. Um, it's good to see you virtually. I wish we could be meeting on, on campus as, as we did um, a year ago, but I'm grateful that we're able to speak in this way. And thanks to everyone who's tuned in to, to learn a little bit more about uh, this book. You're right. I didn't set out to write about the story of, of Henrietta Wood um, because it's not a story that's well-known. It's not one that uh, was already in the the textbooks or had been written about before. I was interested in writing about a story closer to home here in Texas, which was the story of Confederate slaveholders during the American Civil War who were forcing enslaved people to move to Texas in the middle of the Civil War, the American Civil War, to try to evade the effects of emancipation. Um, and so, This was a a huge movement of people. Maybe 50,000 to 150,000 people were forcibly relocated to Texas during the Civil War in this way. But in the fall of 2014, I learned about an article published in the 1870s in an Ohio uh, newspaper that told the story of a woman named Henrietta Wood. And it uh, came to my attention because Wood was one of those people who was forcibly moved to Texas during the war uh, by her owner at the time, who was a a cotton planter in Natchez, Mississippi. But the more I started reading about her story in this article, which was an interview with her in 1879, the more interested I became in, in writing a book about her. Um, because um, while her story of forcible relocation to Texas was one that was shared by, as I said, tens of thousands of other people, Mm -hmm. the way that her story ended made her very unique. Mm -hmm. After the American Civil War, she managed to um, move to Cincinnati, Ohio, where she had lived earlier in her life um, and had actually been a a free woman uh, before the Civil War, before being kidnapped, and enslaved and sold to Mississippi. So she had this long ordeal um, even before the uh, Civil War began. And then after the war, she managed to return to Cincinnati and she filed a lawsuit for restitution against one of the men who had enslaved her. And so um, obviously in in 2014, that was a, a really compelling story to me, partly because conversations about reparations had, had really returned to the public sphere um, in the United States in a big way. Of course, there's there's been a long struggle for reparations going back to the beginning of the nation, mm-hmm. but um, the publication of an article by ta Coates in the summer of 2014, the case for reparations, uh, really revived interest in the subject. And I thought when I learned more about Wood's story, that this was sort of a case of reparations, perhaps, that um, historians might contribute to this ongoing debate uh, of the case for reparations in the present.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so I'm interested in fig- in figuring out, you know, from a historian's perspective, you see one article, and it's like, how am I going to stretch this for tens of thousands of words? Can you elaborate on some of the difficulties of uncovering Black women's histories and archives, particularly those who were enslaved?
0: You're right. I mean, this, there's so many silences in the archives surrounding the lives of women like Henrietta Wood. and. Even though I found that article, which it's 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 rare to to have a lead like that, where a formerly enslaved woman is telling her story mm-hmm. in a newspaper in the 1870s, mm-hmm. um, I did have a question in my mind. You know, would it be possible to to find out more about about her life enough to sustain a book length narrative? Um, that interview that I that I first read didn't even talk about her early life. Um, it picked up in in the 1850s. And so that was a real question in my mind. And it took about a year of research to discover other sources, including another interview that she gave <clears throat> a few years before, um, and then sources that um, allowed me to fill out that story that convinced me there was enough there for the book. But even so, you know, um, there are gaps in the narrative that um, it's not possible to, to fill. Um, and I think that speaks to the, uh, what saidia Hartman calls the founding violence of the archive. Um, the fact that we don't know as much as we would like to know about African-American women, about enslaved people um, is in some ways uh, an artifact of slavery itself and the, the power that slaveholders held in, uh, in the early 19th century uh, South to determine what kinds of stories get recorded uh, what kinds of details about a person's life are important to write down. And so anyone who sets out to to write a story um, about slavery has to reckon with those those power dynamics that are still very much there in the archive uh, in in the history. Um, but I nonetheless, I think sometimes maybe we we as authors or as historians conclude that because there are so many silences in the archive, um, it's not possible to, to recover um, the, the experiences of someone like Wood. And I was continually surprised um, in writing and researching the book, how much I was able to, to find out about her from a variety of sources uh, and also from conversations with, uh, with descendants of hers and, and learning about um, her son's life um, in, into the 20th century. Mm-hmm. It, it really made it possible to, to connect her story, to uh, very recent history, and so I think one hope I would have um, for the book, and and um, you know the surprising recognition for me that it's received is that it would persuade historians of the importance of recovering Black women's history uh, and and centering that history and those experiences in the the story of our of our national life.
1: Mm -hmm. now with regards to writing about uh, henrietta wood's life one of the things that struck me is you wrote very compassionately about her um oftentimes when i see articles talking about race and racism talking about bridging the gap there's often this push to be objective and there's often this push to be um writing dispassionately almost at a distance um on particular subjects and so when you're coming across someone like henrietta wood and and the silence of the archives the violence of the archives i mean what type of advice would you give to someone when you know so much has been lost so much has been recovered and you're trying to have an authoritative stance but at the same time you know this person is still a human being and there's going to be certain interiorities that you might not be able to access
0: that's absolutely right, and 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 um, thank you for saying that because it's a challenge that um, I'm I'm not still sure that I always succeeded in, in rising to meet, um, but I do think it's important for historians of slavery to think about the uh, interior lives of mm-hmm. enslaved people. Um, mm-hmm. You know that they were not just people who um, were were acted upon. Uh, but were actors in their own rights and, and had um, emotional lives that need to be respected and, and evoked uh, in, 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 as, as far as we can, um, you know, and I think um, that's one thing that had frustrated me, going back to your first question about the project I had embarked on originally is that you know i knew about these tens of thousands of people who were who were brought to texas during the civil war but i wasn't i I wasn't having much success finding the experiences and the interior lives of the people who were part of that um that forced movement and so um that was another thing that that convinced me that in a case like woods where there were two interviews that that allowed her to tell her story in her own words, uh, to to some extent, uh, meant that this was something that was important to to tell um, because we don't have a lot of stories um, where we can hear uh, at least somewhat directly from enslaved women themselves about what they experienced.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Another thing that I appreciate about Sweet Taste of Liberty is that it feels like a living, breathing document. You mentioned in the book that we don't have any photos of henrietta Woods, so you know when i'm thinking when i was in history classes when we read about all these historical figures it's almost like they're frozen in time with their two-dimensional images with all of their monumental achievements but you actually brought it home as i like to say because you found her descendants and you were able to show that no like her legacy lives on these people are real and these people were sort of the Guardians of her story. What was it like meeting her descendants after doing all of this preliminary research on her life?
0: Well, that was one of the the, the most humbling and and um, great privileges of of working on the book, and it's one of the things that convinced me that that there was a book here. Um, you know, I mentioned that I had the one interview, uh, but it took about a year of doing research to to determine that that there was enough to to sustain a book-length narrative. And one of the things I discovered in the fall of 2015 was that uh, Henrietta Wood uh, had a son who was born in Mississippi. And maybe I should should say a little bit more about the story so that it's clear why that was such a significant discovery. Um, she was a woman who was born enslaved in Northern Kentucky around 1818 or 1820. But as I mentioned, she was able to move to Cincinnati and gain her freedom in 1848. Um, and so she had about five years in Cincinnati living as a free woman, um, working in, in low wage jobs, but nonetheless um, you know, uh, free from the, the threat of sale as she had been uh, as, a, as a young woman sold uh, more than once. Um, so she lived as a free woman in Cincinnati And she referred to those five years as her sweet taste of liberty but in 1853 she was kidnapped and uh, taken across the Ohio River into the state of Kentucky and Mm re-enslaved and that's what began her long ordeal of of being um, sold to a cotton plantation in Mississippi taken to Texas during the Civil War and I learned in the fall of 2015 that she had given birth to a son named Arthur in Natchez, Mississippi, um, who was born enslaved because she had been re-enslaved. But she managed to keep him by her side throughout this long ordeal um, of re-enslavement. And they moved together back to Cincinnati after the Civil War, where she filed a lawsuit against the man who had kidnapped and re-enslaved her in 1853, a man named Zebulon Ward. Um, and the reason why, you know, discovering her descendants was so significant is because I knew from the beginning about this lawsuit, um, the very first interview that I read with Henrietta Wood um, was conducted after she had won this mm-hmm. lawsuit against Zebulon Ward, and she was awarded $2,500 by a jury in a federal court, which was a significant sum at the time, worth maybe sixty dollars to $65,000 U.S. dollars in in today's currency, um, but I wondered, you know, what impact that award might have had on her family, on her son, on her descendants, um, because it seemed to to raise the possibility of thinking about the the impact that restitution could have made if it had been the policy of the United States to extend such reparations to formerly enslaved people. And so I was very um, interested when I learned that Arthur Sims, her son, um, had moved to Chicago in the late 19th century and had gone to law school um, in in Chicago, partly with the help of the the money that his mother had won in court. And so if we trace out the, the history of his descendants through Chicago in the 20th century, um, we can kind of see the impact that that initial sum of money had on on his fortunes. And so it was a great um, honor to be able to meet one of Arthur's uh, great granddaughters uh, who unfortunately passed away in 2018, but uh, I was able to meet and and speak with her in in Oakland, uh, California, where she lived. And she had uh, retired from a long career as a computer engineer, but oh. remembered her great grandfather. You know, I remember my great grandfather, and and um, she she was about seven or eight when he died in 1951. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they lived together in the same house. Um, she had memories of him, and so it it was very it was very humbling and and um, um, and and important to realize that I was standing talking with someone who was only one person removed from Henrietta Wood herself. Mm-hmm. And I think it speaks to the um the closeness of this history to the present. that you know, okay. too many, I think too many um, white Americans still think of slavery as something that's very distant in our past or or uh, a chapter that's that was long ago closed. But when you think about the the living memory, of of people like uh Miss Adkins who I spoke with, um, it's a it's still a very close period in time. Mm-hmm. You've I mean, done this. I mean, I to turn the yeah. tables, of course you found out in your in your books and your writing too, just yeah. how um, how much this uh you know family history can change the way we think about the history of slavery.
1: Yep, and and I was gonna say with regards to, you know, um Arthur moved from Mississippi to Chicago, I mean, with the great migration for any of you who are familiar with that it's some um, official years between 1910 and 1970 when we millions of African Americans fled the south and went across the country in order to flee racial terrorism and one of the pipelines um is Mississippi to Chicago there are many Chicagoans especially in the present day who have Mississippi roots so that's that's definitely a full circle moment um besides discovering that she had a son um, and getting away from the obstacles, the obstacles that you faced. Were there any other wow moments that you found your research, things that caught you off guard that you didn't didn't think you were ever gonna uncover?
0: <laughs> well, there there were some. I feel like I, I should issue some some spoiler alerts um, oh. <laughs> in, in, in the book. But um, you know, I think one one of the one of the um, most terrible parts of um, the, the domestic slave trade in the antebellum period was the way that it separated families. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was true in Wood's case as well, because as I said, she was born in 1818 or 1820, but she remembered being sold for the first time as a 14-year-old girl. And mm-hmm. so in around 1834, she was separated from her, her family in mm-hmm. northern Kentucky. And she later um, was taken to Louisiana, where mm-hmm. she lived for six or seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that um, one of the, the you know, most powerful stories uh, in African-American history is the effort of formerly enslaved people to locate family members from whom they had been separated and mm-hmm. reconstruct these family trees. Um, there's a wonderful book by historian um, Heather Andrea Williams called yep. Help Me Find My People. Mm-hmm. That that tells the story, and there's a there's a digital um, database online um, called Information Wanted, um, mm-hmm. where advertisements that were placed in late 19th century newspapers by formerly enslaved people, you know, seeking information about their their long lost relatives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, let me just say that you know, um, too often those those efforts were were unsuccessful. Um, And so it it was very um, shocking to me in researching the book uh, to discover that um, not just in one case, but in two cases, uh, Henrietta Wood was actually able to reconnect with long-lost family members um, from whom she had been separated by sale. So uh, I won't say too much about um, when those reconnections occurred because I do hope that people will um, will experience, as I did, the um, the the power of of learning Henrietta Wood's story as mm-hmm. it unfolded.
1: Um, mm-hmm.
0: But that was something that really did did catch me by surprise, and um, and I think was was very moving uh, to to learn about. There, you know, I think there were also other things that um, I learned about Zebulon Ward, who was the man who kidnapped Wood and the man that she held to account in federal court in winning this restitution lawsuit. You know, our first conversation about a year ago, which was about convict labor here in Sugarland and the victims of, of convict leasing after the Civil War was a story that I didn't expect to come up in writing this book about Henrietta Wood, but there was a connection there too, because Ward went on to um, manage prisons in the American South. After the Civil War, which mm-hmm. in many ways, um, ensnared formerly enslaved people into new systems of forced labor um, and exploitation. And um, so he was he, you know, I was kind of um, uh, there were many things about his life that just seemed to confirm again and again his his nefarious uh, character, but um, but I think I did learn a lot from reading about him. Uh, the continuities between the history of slavery and the history of prison labor and mass incarceration that that Mm -hmm. followed the Mm -hmm. end of slavery. And so those were also um, discoveries that stick out in my mind as important in the process.
1: Mm -hmm. Some of the things that I've been researching, as well as the Black Codes, uh, the Black Codes that were happening immediately after the American Civil War, where um, there were restrictions, to put it lightly, um, on black people's movement, employment, gathering. But you had this black woman who, you know, wanted, you know, who, who sued a white man, a former mm-hmm. captor. Can you speak just a little bit about the courageousness of that in, in these in these very difficult times
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's it's a story of of incredible, um, you know, determination on her part to make sure that her story was told, mm-hmm. uh, and that's something that I think the book could not have have been written without uh, her determination time and again to tell about what happened to her. You know, after she was kidnapped, mm-hmm. um, within hours she was talking about how she had been wrongfully enslaved and her freedom had been taken away from her, um, and she never forgot. Word's name, you know, she managed to to return all the way from Texas to to Cincinnati to to you know challenge him in court. This was not just you know um, it would have been significant for her to have done that with any um, with any white man, you know, in in the eighteen seventies in a federal court. But he was by that time a, a pretty powerful you know mm. political figure. He had amassed a significant amount of wealth. By profiting off the labor of prisoners in the in the penitentiaries that he managed, um, he was kind of a, a minor celebrity of the time because he was uh, he was an enthusiast of horse racing, and so if you can kind of imagine the the wealth that we see on display at the Kentucky Derby, you know even today, you know he was kind of in those box seats, you know he was in the upper echelons of. Of the American South, somebody who who was used to being in the winner's circle, uh, as it were. And so the fact that she um, challenged him in court, and then stuck with the case across many years of litigation. You know, I don't think I've mentioned before that the case took eight years um, to come to a conclusion, and she um, was a woman who because of the kinds of codes that you just mentioned in, in the antebellum period, had never been taught how to read or to write. Uh, you know, so she could only sign her legal documents with an X, uh, her legal mark. Uh, and yet what comes across from the record is the incredible legal savvy that she had, you mm-hmm. know, the hard-won knowledge that she had of what courts could do for her um, mm-hmm. and the significance of, of of uh, challenging him in court of telling her story, uh, it really is um, a, a remarkable story of, of courage. And um, it's, it's, I think it's important to note that she's not the, the only, you know, mm-hmm. um, such story. You know, there were lots of formerly enslaved people who were Um, who were articulating the demand for reparations in this period. Someone else who comes to mind uh, who followed her in the late 19th century was a woman named Callie House who led a a grassroots movement in the 1890s to lobby Congress to pay uh, what she called ex-slave pensions to formerly Mm -hmm. enslaved people in restitution. Um, And so there are lots of stories um, like these uh, again, if we go back to our earlier conversation, if historians will will look for them and and value um, the 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 records that reveal those stories.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, 2019 was an auspicious time. Um, your book came out then. The 1619 Project, spearheaded by uh, Nicole Hannah Jones, New York Times, also came out in 2019. Both works, prodigious works. Um, Talk about the legacies of the enslaved, and both of you won the Pulitzer Prize for your respective works. How does it feel? I mean, that's like a writer's dream.
0: I, I, I it was a, it's a huge honor to 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 have um, been a part of the same class as Nicole um, Hannah Jones, whose work I've I've admired for a long time and learned a lot from. Um, I think it I think it does reflect um, the Pulitzer boards. Um, recognition of the importance of of the history of slavery. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think if you look at the the History Award, um, to to say that a story like Henrietta Woods is a significant chapter in the history of the United States Mm
1: -hmm.
0: um, is is important. Uh, You know, not I think it's not so much the the book itself, but the story and and her story that's being honored. Mm-hmm. Um, by that recognition. And I think that's exactly what the, the 1619 project is also um, attempting to do is, is center the uh, experience of enslaved people and uh, what they can tell us about the history of the United States. Um, and so it, it does seem to me fitting to, to have both of those projects um, come out at the same time and, and be recognized in this way.
1: Absolutely. So, last question for you: What's next? Are you basking in your accomplishments? Are you working on another book?
0: Well, uh, as as a, our, our moderator mentioned in the introduction, I've um, I'm on a steep learning curve here at Rice because I've been uh, chairing our department since this summer, and of course, with the the pandemic uh, and everything that that's meant for higher education, it's been a challenge to to you know, keep our classes going, to help our students uh, pursue their studies. And so that's occupied a lot of my time. Um, I'm also co-chairing a, a task force here at Rice University on slavery, segregation, and racial injustice. And it's a project like uh, similar initiatives at other universities to reckon with our own history as an institution uh, and to trace out the ways that, that um, you know, our university like, really, most institutions in American life have been entangled with the histories of slavery, segregation, and, and racial injustice. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that uh, I'm working on now. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if anyone's interested in learning more about that, we have a website, uh, taskforce.rice.edu, um, where we're, we're revealing some of the research that we're, we're finding. Um, but I don't know after that, you know, what's what's next uh, for me. Um, but I'm I, uh, looking forward to uh, to getting back to research for sure.
1: I'm sure. I was going to say you also have what the two minute project was that your that was your undertaking right where you say every two minutes a, a slave a, a person is sold. Oh, the
0: every three minutes the three, the, the, the Twitter Sorry. account. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that's uh, we mentioned earlier, you know, the, 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 um, the scale of the domestic slave trade and the way that before the Civil War, it separated so many African-American families. Um, and one historian um, in the uh, 80s calculated that, that if we were to add up all of the, the domestic sales of enslaved people in the antebellum period, We'd come up with a figure like uh, somewhere close to every 3.6 minutes there was a sale um, in, in the American South. And uh, I was teaching that statistic in one of my classes uh, many years ago and trying to turn it into more than a statistic. I mean, because um, the impact of that is, is sort of hard to fathom. And so, um, I, I used a Twitter account, um, which might seem like a an, an odd way to memorialize that. but you know, um, one thing that Twitter does is is organizes things in time, you know, and so I, mm-hmm. there's a there's a, a message that comes out from this account every three minutes as a as a reminder of um, of how often these sales uh, occurred.
1: Mm-hmm. that actually helps me because I would look at it.'m I'm, I'm a millennial, so I'm on Twitter a lot. And um, as you already know, and sometimes I'll just be listening to music and I'll see it come up and I'll be like, wow, even though obviously this is 2020, just know that other people's lives were ongoing while someone else was being exchanged as property. Um, mm-hmm. Really hits home for me. And and, and I, I, obviously as a descendant of the enslaved. Um, so I think the last question I'm gonna ask because we have two minutes left um, is besides learning about um, you know, people are gonna buy the book, I'm sure. And learning about Henrietta Woods life, is there anything else you want me want people to take away from it? Any other larger themes?
0: Well, I you know, I I think I said earlier that one of the things that attracted me to to the story was the the resonance in the present and mm-hmm. the fact that there are debates ongoing even now about reparations for historical wrongs, mm-hmm. including slavery. And last year on, on June nineteenth there was a congressional hearing about a bill in the House of Representatives to create a commission to investigate the history of slavery and, and think make recommendations about how to repair and redress those wrongs. And so, you know, in our political um, sphere, you hear a lot of arguments for and against reparations, but I do hope that people who read the book will, uh, will have that debate in mind. Um, you know, I think the lessons of Wood's story um, are, are in some ways an, an ambiguous, but uh, what they do show us is the, the power of even a small amount uh, of money to impact uh, a family, uh, in the case of Wood and her son and his legal career. Um, mm-hmm. They also though, her victory also points to the need for a larger reckoning with the history of slavery that the nation is still uh, has not really undertaken. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Zebulon Ward lost her case in in court, uh, lost his case in court, but he never admitted that he had done something wrong, you know, he Mm -hmm. never apologized. Um, And so there were limits to her efforts to win redress through the courts. Um, And so I I hope that readers of the book will will ponder as I did um, what the lessons of her story might be for these ongoing debates today. Thank you for listening to Jayapur Bytes, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Laksh Tata. This podcast is produced by Launchora in partnership with Teamwork Arts. Please follow or subscribe to Jayapur Bytes wherever you're listening to this. Ah.